All right, good morning. It is good to be here. What do you all think of the progress? I think we should give a hand to the building committee, just real quick. The addition on the church here has begun. I'd say, uh, like I tell some of my customers when they come out and look at a roof we started, we said, well, it's too far to turn back now. Uh, but looking at this, we can see different things uh, and have different takeaways. But something that I see is a result. A result of somebody's imagination. Somebody took knowledge and... Maybe we can't tell quite yet, but we're assuming they know how to apply it. So, if that's true, then that would be wisdom at work, right? I would say wisdom in a, in a physical, earthly sense is, is knowing how to apply knowledge to benefit you or someone in a particular way. That's my own definition of wisdom. Um like to talk a little bit about wisdom. Um, I'm, Lord willing, kind of starting a series of messages, uh, maybe at least three or four, I'm, I'm thinking. But the title of this message, and I'm not telling you what the series is about right now uh, on purpose, uh, but the, the title for this message is, I think that sounds right. That's my title. Uh, but if you think about uh, building, I'd like to relay a story here quickly that I heard years ago, but has always stuck with me. But there was a contractor that had a foreman that he really appreciated, had worked for him for years. And the foreman was an older man and was getting ready to retire, um, but had done a great job as foreman for the contractor for the years he worked for him. The contractor had an idea of how to bless this foreman. He wanted to give him a gift. So he asked the foreman, before you retire, I'd like to get you to build one more house for me. This is for a customer that means a lot to me. It's really important that you would take this time and build a house for my friend. Would you do that for me before you retire? Kind of as a last thing that I'd ask of you. Um, and truthfully, the foreman was not, his heart wasn't in it. He wanted to retire, but because of his contractor and the relationship they had, he said, I'll, I'll build one more house for you. And again, this is all just to make a point. But the foreman began building the house. It was soon evident that um, he was not adhering to the standards that he had adhered to before, his standards of excellence that he had come to to live by. Um, and so he basically was thinking, how fast can I get this house done? And uh, how can I make it happen? Well, and it showed his, his normal craftsmanship was not up to his normal standards. And uh, he began to, began to look kind of sh shoddy or sloppy. I mean, it might probably look good on the outside, but it wasn't built. The quality was not what he had normally been used to, to making. So uh, what happened was when the house was all complete, for the most part, 
he told the contractor, I just finished up. So the contractor, not really knowing what all went on behind the scenes for the foreman, handed him the keys to his new house and said, this is your house for you to live in. And of course, that the story kind of ends there. But the point of it is, the foreman had to live in the house that he built. It's not hard to understand. But it's true for each one of us, right? We live in the house we built. Now, there's times we want to blame other people for the house we live in. But as a general rule, we live in the house we built. And so, having said that, when we talk about building the house, we build our own house through decisions we make and things and so on. But overall, what built our house is our perspective and the way we looked at life. Fair to say? I think that sounds right. So I want to talk a little bit. And okay, so what I'd like to address in my series of messages is false teaching. How to how to pick out or how to recognize false teaching. But this message is kind of an introduction, and I want to help us to think. I think thinking is of all importance um, when we talk about the Christian life, living life. We, there, it seems there are certain cultures maybe that tend to be more tend to be more thinkers maybe. All of us. With our own personality, some people are more thinkers than others. We analyze things more. Sometimes people just want to make a decision and move on. There's room for that. But overall, we want to be able to think and make good decisions. So what do we do? This is the first question I like to ask. What do we do when we're, perple when we're perplexed? So I want to just give some different examples, different areas of life where you could be perplexed in. So in the area of physical health, there's people that could be perplexed. Something may be wrong. They're not sure what it is, but they don't feel good. And so they're perplexed. In emotional health, we hear a lot about emotional health in today's day and age. Uh, mental health, which kind of goes along with emotional health. We hear a lot about that. Um, maybe you're perplexed in those areas. What about in finances? What about in world events? We talked a little bit about that in Sunday school. Where do we go uh, for information, for knowledge? We, you know, when it comes to world events, are there things that are perplexing to you? And if they are, what are, how are you, what avenue are you taking to answer your questions? What about in spiritual things? Are you perplexed in spiritual things? It's often our tendency to seek after information and knowledge when we're perplexed about something. And that's, that's okay, isn't it? It's okay to, to want to know more about something when we're perplexed about a particular subject or situation. I think that's normal. But I've also heard it said that we live in an information age. I get to use the word copious this morning. I don't get to use that very often. But I decided to use it here. There is copious amounts, which is, is a large amount, plenty, overflowing amount 
of information is more readily accessible today than ever before in the history of the world. I guess I thought that was a given. That's just something I came up with. So if you would disagree with that, let me know. Uh, but I believe that it is more, there's information more readily accessible today than ever before in the history of the world. And so I want to ask this question. Is seeking after knowledge an accurate way to make wise choices? It seems today it's easy to blur the lines between knowledge and wisdom. And I can have all kind of knowledge of wood and how it's made. I can have a knowledge of tape measures and a knowledge of hammers, but to put all those to good use and build something like this would be sketchy at best, I'd say. Would I have the wisdom to apply my knowledge? They're different things. Wisdom and knowledge. So I want to ask you, I want you to imagine this in your, in your mind. Can, can a wise person. Actually, let me ask the question like this. Can a foolish person, we'll start with a foolish person first. Can a foolish person take a boatload of knowledge and make shipwreck with it? I would think most of us would agree that, oh, it's entirely possible for a foolish person, since he's a foolish person after all, to take a boatload of knowledge and make shipwreck. So, that's true. So, is the flip side true as well then? And so, in my mind, for one to be true, the other would very likely have to be true. This, this statement right here, or this question, can a wise person take a bit of knowledge and make a wise decision? It's hard to make any kind of a decision when you have no idea about something. But, will a wise person actually know the right information to get? That's something we want to look at later. Getting knowledge isn't bad, but knowing what knowledge to get and what to believe, what you hear, can take wisdom. So, some things to think about. How you think determines what you believe. I'd like, I'd like to look at some verses that are just interesting. I'm, I'm not really looking at the context too much, but it would be applicable, but I'm going to... Um, just kind of uh, look at this section of verses. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, and they had, uh, I guess, asked him about food that was offered to idols. Um, so Paul's response is very interesting. They had a question about food offered to idols. So in my mind, okay, this is, Paul, Paul answered this in a very, very wise way. First he said, now as, things, as, as touching things or concerning things, talking about things offered unto idols, he said this, we all know, we know that we all have knowledge. Then he said this, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. So there he, he definitely puts knowledge about something second place to having the proper love for God and for, I believe, our fellow man. Charity edifieth. And then he said this, and if any man think that he knoweth anything... He knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. He's saying this in response to food offered to idols. So far, it's not, I'm not connecting this. But when you read on the rest of the chapter, 
he, I realize that Paul is giving a perspective rather than an answer. He's teaching them how to think rather than telling them what to think. And if we can grasp that concept of teaching, um, that has, and I've said this before, but that has been the single biggest change in, in the life of me and my family in raising my children. When I realized the importance of teaching them how to think rather than teaching them what to think. And I love the way that Paul actually, you see this played out in the way he answered the Corinthian church. So I'd encourage you to read the chapter. We won't this morning. But I want to look at this comment that he made. If any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet, as he ought to know. And at face value, you look at these words, you're like, okay, what does he really mean? If any man thinks he knoweth anything, he doesn't know anything yet, as he ought to know. It's very interesting, his terminology. But what really helped me is to first realize that he is addressing a perspective. And so I started looking at these words, and I, y'all that attend here regularly know that I, I love to look at the original Greek meaning of different words that are translated in a particular way. So there's actually two places here where he uses the word knoweth. If any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. And I had never realized this till I looked into it, and I'm not exactly even sure what made me start looking into it, but I, I realized that right there he's addressing two different ways of thinking, two different perspectives. So when he said, if any man think that he knoweth, that's a Greek word, anything, he knoweth nothing yet. That word knoweth is a different Greek word. And I'd never know it without digging into it. Two different words that are translated knoweth. So, the first word, when he says, if a man think he knoweth anything, that word knoweth has been translated saw, see, probably more times than knoweth. It's been translated, and it means to perceive with the eyes. Physical perception. And so to me, that is right along the lines of someone that wants to make a decision, so they go seeking out and learning all they can about what they're going to make a decision about, and using what they, the information they gathered to try to make a wise decision. Well, what if you happen not to be very wise? Then what? Well, you thought it was wise to start looking at information in the first place, but what if... What if it's getting processed wrong? The light of the body is the eye. If your eye's good, your whole body's full of light. But what if you're not looking at things properly? Then you take the information and you do wrong things with it, you unwise things with it. Are you following me? Is, that, is it making sense? So that word knoweth, if a man think that he knoweth anything, that means that he thinks he knows because he saw with the eyes. He saw the information. He got the knowledge. And so he drew a conclusion, made a decision. But the next word where it says, And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought. 
That's a different Greek word. He knoweth nothing yet as he ought. So that word there would give more the idea of understanding, of actually knowing, of perceiving properly, having a right understanding of. It's a much deeper word than just seeing with the eyes. And you take what you, what you see and you, you're like a literal person. The second knoweth is deeper and has to do more with understanding. The way that you actually uh, would, your perspective, is addressing your perspective. He knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. So, very interesting. Let me read this again. Now as things, as touching things offered unto idols, we know we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God... The same is known of him. Beautiful perspective verse there. And again, maybe to make full sense, read the rest of the chapter. But I love his end thought on verse 3 there, where he says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Talk about a perspective shift. They're all concerned about food offered to idols. But he says, look, the important thing is, is that you love God, and then you know that, he, that you're loved of him as well. You love God, he loves you. That's what's important. And then he goes on, and the rest of the chapter talks more about um, realizing the truth, that there is only one God. There's not other gods, even though they say there's many gods and, and things. But there's we say there's only one God. And so, you know, if you eat food that's offered to idols, you know that you're free. You serve the living God. But he goes on to say, if there's other people that actually believe in these gods, believe these gods are real, and they're trying to, they have a newfound faith, they're trying to serve, this is the idea I get from what he's saying, that if you, if, if you have a new Christian that maybe thinks these are actually real gods, just not superior, just not equal to the one true God, but they see you eating meat, and, and they think, well, then it's fine, and they end up stumbling and losing out on the faith. You know, he gives reasons for not eating meat, but it's not because of your, you know, your freedom in Christ allows you to live freely. So two different veins of thought, just operating by how you see and understand life in general. In other words, uh, if, if Jason would take his knowledge and his wisdom that he has to build houses and just stick them straight into the Bible and say, well, you know, it's got to work out this way because it works it works in, in here because it works out there. Would that be safe? No. The Bible talks much about earthly wisdom, which is applying knowledge. But then there's also a spiritual wisdom, which only comes through being freed from sin, having your sins forgiven, and having God's spirit dwell within you. That is where spiritual wisdom comes from where somebody that only has earthly wisdom, it would sound like foolishness. Colossians 2, I'd like to read that, just a few verses, 20 to 23, where he says this, he addresses this two different ways of thinking, like worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Wherefore, if you be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances, to the worldly system? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments 
and doctrines of men. That is addressing a worldly mindset. And when he talks about when he talks about this, he's actually referring to the way the Pharisees were living. The Pharisees, though religious, had a worldly mindset of touch not, taste not, handle not. And starting out here, he says, wherefore, if you be dead with Christ. See, that's the difference. That's having forgiveness of sins. If you have been freed from your sin and you have God's spirit dwelling within, why are you still needing these worldly commands, touch not, taste not, handle not, to live your life? It says, which all are to perish with the using. So what that means, perish with the using, the word using, it's the only place in the New Testament I believe that that word is found um, at all. And it would actually mean abuse, from what I can find. Would perish, worldly laws perish through abuse. And many of us have probably experienced that in one form or another, where a, a man-made law basically became irrelevant over time because it was twisted and stretched totally beyond its original intent, and it ends up being used simply to as a power source to control people. You see that happen in, in government a lot, where some of the rules and laws that were made have no relevance anymore um, because they've long left their original intent, being used for their what they originally intended for. But that's where people um, have a strong um, value on the Constitution, and not just the Constitution, but the context in which it was written and what the early, uh, the early, the first people, you know, that helped write the Constitution, what did they have in mind? What was the context? What, what did they, what were they wanting when they wrote that? A little bit the same way that we would look at Scripture. What was the intent of, not just what was written, what was the intent of what was written, to make a proper decision? When we try to make wise choices simply through gaining knowledge and information through our earthly eyes, we end up with a life that only looks right and seems wise, but has no strength to overcome your sin problem. So this, we have to live inside out rather than outside in. Many in our churches today, I feel, have it backwards. They're trying to live a righteous life to try to have a righteous heart. And it does not work, and we can tell it doesn't work by all of the hidden sin that we're now dealing with in a lot of our cultures, and in, 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 our, in our Mennonite culture. We deal with that a lot. Um, people often would say, well, it's not just the Mennonite church. It's everybody. I agree. So therefore, what you're saying is, the Mennonite culture has nothing more to offer than anybody else. Is that, what, is that what we're saying? Well, if we're living backwards, then yes, I think that's accurate. But if we live inside out, in other words, if our life that we live and the decisions we make are a product of what's taking place inside, then we're on the road to liberty. We're on the road to, to freedom. We're on the road to a fulfilled relationship with God through Christ. We're on the road to loving properly. We're on the road to contentment and peace. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about that we must be a new creature. It says that we are old things. The perspective of our sin nature must pass away. All things must become new. New perspective that comes not just from seeing the truth, but knowing and understanding it. The thought of, well, I can just... I can just 
you know, go take the Bible at face value. I'm, I'm a, you know, if it says it, I believe it. It's good enough for me. It can be a dangerous way to live. Knowledge and info cannot, I use the word info, that's the modern way of saying information, right? Knowledge and information cannot make one wise. That's my thoughts. Do you agree with that? Knowledge and information cannot make one wise. When we focus only on information, we put our problem. Now, listen to this. This is something that I, I, I really agreed with, but I came up with it, so I guess I would. Uh, but it, it kind of struck a chord. It, I hadn't really thought of it in this way before, but listen and see if you agree with me. When we focus only on information about what perplexes us, when we focus only on information, we put our problem on a pedestal and it becomes a defining element of our identity. I thought that was kind of fancy. But I think it, there's truth in there. When, when, you, when you start to uh, really try to gain knowledge and information to make a wise decision, okay, that's, there's a point. We need knowledge and information, right? I mean, it's, we're not going to be able to operate without it, but when it becomes our drive and our focus and our passion, and that's all we can talk about, and, and we spend time, hours on, online trying to figure out what's going on, and, and we try, we think we have to know in order to make a right decision moving forward, it ends up we put our situate our problem, we put on a pedestal, and we'll, we'll have all the time uh, that we want to try to solve it because it's going to be there for a long time. Sometimes it seems that we'll do a little better. We found some new piece of information. Then we found out, oh, no, I guess it worked for a while. It doesn't work anymore. But the problem is going to stay up there, and that's going to be our most focused on thing in our life. And it, and it will, I believe, become a defining element of our identity. I believe some of the common results of seeking after knowledge and information. These are some, thank you, Jasper, some common results. And I'm saying when that becomes our focus and our drive, rather than seeking after godly wisdom for our life. Remember, it may not seem like it connects, but this, these verses here that Paul wrote, stick this in your situation, wherever you're at. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Do you love God or do you love knowledge and information? So fear is the first thing um, that I have on the list that I believe is a common result of seeking after knowledge and information. Fear, confusion, being critical. I've heard this often um, over the years from folks that it seems are just on that path of seeking after knowledge and information. When you try to give any kind of insight, well, you don't understand. You do not understand. Until you have been in my shoes, you don't understand. Being critical, dramatic is another one. That's that's kind of my my word there. I, being dramatic, um, I like being dramatic when I'm sending a message of hope. But when it comes to being dramatic about my problem, I tend to. I don't know. I just I, I I've had enough of drama. It's uh, yeah. So we'll move on from there. Being discontent is another one uh, that comes to mind. Another word that that was just interesting for me when I, when I thought of it, uh, 
but I really believe it to be true. When you seek after knowledge and information, you actually become gullible. You're easily persuaded to believe something. That might not seem normal, but I think it's pretty normal. Um, we read something, and it looks right, and so we buy into it. Like, this guy must know what he's talking about. And that can be in the area of, you know, physical perplexities. It can also be in the area of spiritual perplexities. But godly wisdom. Godly wisdom doesn't come from looking around down here. It doesn't come from looking online at the latest and greatest and the most relevant studies. Godly wisdom comes from a different source. It comes from up there. It comes from loving God and being loved by Him. That's where godly wisdom comes from. And what's interesting, I, I love this, and I've, I've read it so often, but it always hits me. James 3, it talks about the wisdom that is from above. The very first thing it says is that it's pure. It's hard to find anything pure down here these days. But the wisdom that is from above, up there, is first, and it says first, pure, first pure. Isn't that beautiful? Then, it's peaceable. Then, it's gentle. Then, it's easy to be entreated. Then, it's full of mercy. It's also full of good fruits. It's not partial. And it's genuine. It's not hypocritical. And it says the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. You know, a common, one of the true marks, I believe, of wisdom from above is that of peace. Think about it. It's pure and it's peaceable. Who wouldn't want that? When it when, when you read it, when you realize it, you're like, oh, that's what I should have been seeking after. Does knowledge and information bring you peace? Maybe only to the point that you can control your situation with it. But when we really realize how out of control of our own lives we really are. Yes, the Lord honors us by allowing us to also often have consequences to our decisions. Sometimes that's not a good thing. But, true wisdom only comes, true peace only comes from looking up. True wisdom is found in a heavenly perspective. I just threw this thought in about, I thought about not even reading it, but it, it was a little humorous for me. Uh, and it somewhat applies to what we're talking about, I guess. But thinking about how knowledge and information doesn't always get the job done. You can have intimate knowledge about a train. How it works, how fast it goes, and what time it runs. Stopping it safely is another matter altogether. I like that. You need to actually be able to apply the truths in God's word correctly for it to make 
a difference in your life. Godly wisdom. Knowledge alone does little. Having wisdom can make knowledge useful. Having wisdom helps us acquire accurate knowledge. Very important. So when we're going to research anything, even in our physical lives, but we have godly wisdom, we know first and foremost that we are loved of God and, are, and we love Him. And we're living with our sins forgiven. That clears our minds to even make good physical decisions, I feel. Having wisdom can make knowledge useful. Having wisdom helps us acquire accurate knowledge. It gives us, I think, a good balance of the knowledge we need to make a good decision, but it keeps us balanced and not actually becoming passionate and adapting the identity of knowing about this particular subject. Having wisdom makes us passionate about the right things. It changes our desires. I had to think about that when uh, my brother Johnny mentioned that he tried three times to get a hold of people at the Renaissance. I'd say he was persistent. But if he was doing it out of duty and it wasn't in his heart, he could have said, well, I tried once and they didn't answer. I guess uh, I don't have to try again. Having wisdom makes us passionate about the right things. Gives us proper desires. Having wisdom gives us a heavenly perspective. You know, I think of the, you know, the man that was a cripple and his friends went up on the roof, took some tiles off, and let him down in front of Jesus. I love the interaction there where Jesus actually looked at him and said, thy sins be forgiven me. Because that was the man's problem. You know, it wasn't his problem that he was a cripple. That wasn't why he didn't have peace. It was because he needed forgiveness of sins. We get that mixed up so often. We look at our problem and say, that's my problem. But the real problem might be something different. His problem was that his sins weren't forgiven. And Jesus said, thy sins be forgiven thee. Well, that raised a big uproar with those around that said, who on earth can forgive sins? And they were accusing him of, him of blasphemy. But Jesus said, which is harder to say? Rise and walk, or that thy sins be forgiven thee? Y'all make the choice. Well, the choice is, uh, the, the reality is, it was utterly impossible for them to do either one. To, to heal that man, or to forgive his sins. But Jesus was as capable of one as the other. So he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he turns to the sick of the palsy and says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. And that happened. True wisdom comes from having our sins forgiven and our minds renewed by the Spirit of God. So, I shared that message to address false teaching. And my heart is, rather than just point out and say, well, this teaching is false, this teaching is false, this teaching is false, this is, you know, for the most part true, but you got to watch out for this, this, and this. 
besides the fact that I don't think it would be very effective, it would probably be somewhat arrogant. But my heart is to teach us, me included, I want to learn through this as well, the importance of thinking properly, and it's with a proper perspective that we can recognize false teaching. How do we know when a teaching is false? 1 John 4 says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Perspective is very important for me. And if I hear someone preach, and it's a different perspective, you could say, when they're preaching about a God that, that's different than how I've come to know him, you know, what are we to do with that? How are we supposed to approach that? Do we say, well, I must have to change. He's a preacher. He obviously knows what he's talking about. Or do we say, well, not sure. What do I do with that? I guess he can believe that way. I can believe this way. Is that our approach? Or do we become seekers of godly wisdom? So this is an example, and this is specific to some of the teaching that is in our area. And that actually a fairly large number of us have, have uh, in our community, have begun to believe at least an element of this teaching. And in the coming weeks, I'm planning to be fairly open with you about this teaching and who's behind it, where it comes from. But I want you to reach your own conclusions as to whether you think it's false. Even if you hear me say, I believe this is false. Don't go by what I say. I want you to reach that conclusion yourself. And if you don't think it is, I'd love to talk to you and hear your, your viewpoint. So Jesus said, and Matt, this, I'm going a little overtime. I hope you're all okay with this. It's not like we don't have a lot of things to look at and enjoy while we're sitting here, right? After this manner, therefore, pray ye. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Probably one of the most familiar passages or like words in scripture when Jesus was teaching the disciples how to pray. So there is a quote that's kind of a foundational quote of some teaching in the area that says this. If it exists there, it's supposed to exist here. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is the will of God? On earth as it is in heaven. If it exists there, it's supposed to exist here. That quote was given by a Bill Johnson. So at face value, when you take things in just as you see them, when you read that, you think, well, huh, that sounds right. Because it says, that kingdom come that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If it exists there, it's supposed to exist here. That's kind of a foundational quote. You see it on uh, the, the face page of the website that represents the church that this man would attend and be a part of and pastor. Is this a false statement or a true one? We can go to scripture and we can actually find lots of verses that seemingly support this. If it exists there, it should exist here. But I think with the right perspective, we can approach this statement with godly wisdom and know God's heart on the Lord's Prayer. With a passion for godly wisdom, we can acquire proper knowledge and retain useful information 
and draw wise conclusions on whether the teaching surrounding this statement is true. That in turn will help us give a wise evaluation of this statement and the teaching surrounding it. So until I preach again, think about that statement. And if you have some time, if you desire to do so, look at it. Look at scripture. Look at the teaching surrounding it. And draw a conclusion, if you will. So I'd like to end with this. Can a wise person, I'm just repeating it, can a wise person take a bit of knowledge and make a wise decision? Can a foolish person take a boatload of knowledge and make shipwreck with it? I think the answer is yes to both of those. But until next time, God bless you with a desire to know truth and with a desire to seek after godly wisdom. And thank you for listening uh, today.